Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back to Black's History Week. Australia's military capacity to check Chinese influence is being boosted by a new Anglo-American submarine contract and the establishment of the AUKUS Defence Pact. But how have Australia's interests been defended until now in the Southwest Pacific, and what difference will AUKUS make? In this week's Black's History Week podcast, Professor Jeremy Black talks to the critics, Deputy Editor Graham Stewart about the past and present of Australia's role in the Western Alliance. Professor Jeremy Black, before we get into discussing uh, Australia's new defence pact with Britain and the United States, I wonder if you could give us a sense of how the defence of Australia and the waters around it were, um, were, were conducted before that. To what extent it was dependent on the Royal Navy before 1939? Yes, and the first British presence there was in 1788. And at that stage, uh, Britain was in a competition with France. And had there been a conflict in those waters, the initial assumption would have been that it would have been with the French. The British presence was a naval one. Um, In practical terms, the British didn't need to uh, defend their relatively minor uh, presence in Australia in the early decades of Britain's operations there. The nearest conflict um, during the Napoleonic Wars uh, was in the uh, East Indies, subsequently now Indonesia, uh, where Britain took a number of the Dutch positions. The Dutch at that stage were part of the French system, but without any of that conflict, Uh, going over as far as Australia was concerned. And if you look at the British military presence in Australia in the early decades, the military presence therefore was largely for two two reasons. One, to for internal control in the sense of overawing convicts and uh, uh, controlling the colonies in that point of view. And secondly, insofar as there was conflict with Aboriginal peoples. Uh, The situation changes in Australia Um, in the mid uh, 19th century with anxiety about Russia in particular. So there's anxiety during the period of the Crimean War, again at the time of the 1877-1878 crisis, and again at the time of the 1885 crisis. And these lead to concerns about how best to defend Sydney against the possibility of uh, Russian warships appearing. Russia had developed Vladivostok as a base, Uh, from 1860 and Russian warships were therefore seen as a possible issue in the Pacific. And this may seem implausible, but it wasn't implausible. The Russians had, in fact, um, you may remember being a North Pacific power. Uh, The Aleutian Islands and Alaska were uh, Russian until 1867. Uh, Russian warships had been in uh, Central and Southern Pacific waters, so it seemed perfectly reasonable. And there was also modest concern about the French once the French established themselves in Tahiti from 1844, and then when the French, as it were, established a closer presence in New Caledonia. But at every stage, although there was concern, the assumption was that the Royal Navy, as the world's leading navy, would be in a position to provide security. In other words, the concern was more against raiders, Russian warships turning up and raiding Sydney than, as it were, a permanent strategic challenge. 
I think it's fair to say uh, that the situation starts to change towards the end of the 19th century as the idea of imperial defense being a co collaborative and cooperative um, project is launched um, with the encouragement of the British government, but also the major uh, role of the dominions. The dominions, to a certain extent, had been, I think, shocked is going too far a point but you know when the british withdrew most of their garrisons from canada in 1871 for example uh, this this did serve notice to dominion governments that they needed to be playing a significant role and this was reasonable australia after all was one of the major sources of bullion uh, gold australia was very wealthy it seemed reasonable that australia should make a greater effort and the australians concurred they were interested in that. And it's also worth bearing in mind that this reached into the Australian public. So Australians volunteered to serve in the Boer War um, of 1899 to 1902, as indeed did other uh, 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 Dominion pe peoples, for example, from Canada. Um, if, if you move towards World War One, then you get Australia itself taking a more proactive role. The Germans had established themselves in the 1880s um, in, the, uh, in New Guinea, eastern New Guinea, and in the Bismarck Archipelago to its east. This was seen by Australia, and indeed by New Zealand, uh, as a challenge. Uh, there was anxiety about whether the British were sufficiently mindful of it. Um, the Anglo-Japanese Alliance of 1902, which was an alliance designed to help enable the British to focus on the German challenge in, in home waters, uh, was one that, as it were, was not exactly what the Australians would have liked. They would have preferred a larger British naval presence. And this encouraged, again, the Australian interest in developing naval forces. Um, World War One. Uh, there are German surface raiders um, in uh, Australian waters. Uh, fortunately for Australia, the main um, German fleet in the Pacific uh, goes east from Chinese waters, attacks the British off Coronel uh, in Chile, sinks, sinks the British force there, and then sails around to the Falkland Islands where it's destroyed by the British in 19, uh, you know, the Battle of the Falkland Islands at the close of 1914. Had that fleet turned up in Australian waters, it would have been ugly. Uh, there were some pretty major uh, warships on the German side there. Um, thereafter, um, Australia continues essentially its policy of trying to encourage the British uh, to project their naval power as far east as possible. Um, and the Australians are very interested in the 1920s and 1930s in the development of Singapore as a major British naval base. They see uh, the collapse of the Anglo-Japanese naval agreement uh, as creating a new threat to them, a threat from Japan. Um, and they're very interested in the idea that the British should forward project their naval power um, based in Singapore in order to offset any Japanese move south. Uh, now, as you know, um, what happens in uh, 1941 
is that Britain faces an unprecedented strategic uh, factor. Instead of being able to fight sequentially against Germany, Italy, and Japan, it has to fight simultaneously against them, which puts an enormous pressure on the world's leading navy alongside the technological threats coming from uh, submarine and air uh, launched um, uh, uh, weaponry. And it has to be said that the Singapore project fails uh, it fails essentially because force said that his base there uh, operates under Admiral Phillips in a misconceived fashion. So it's failed before the loss of Singapore. The naval uh, contingent base there has been destroyed. Uh, subsequently, of course, the Japanese raid into the Indian Ocean in April um, 1942 sink the only British aircraft carrier in the Indian Ocean, the Hermes, two British heavy cruisers, beat up um, um, British air power, forced the British fleet in the area to scatter. And this does not augur well for the defence of Australia. And the very rapid way in which the Japanese, using very effective um, combined operations, very effective amphibious attacks, uh, have moved on from um, uh, as it were, the, the first order priorities to second order priorities throughout the Dutch East Indies. They destroy the joint American, Australian, British force of cruisers in the Battle of the Java Sea. Australia feels vulnerable. There's, of course, bombing of um, Darwin by uh, Japanese planes, which are newly lo nearly located. And the um, um, you know, I've been to the northern Queensland and you, you can see the bases that are there that as the Australians prepared to decide how best prepared for what seemed to them to the possibility of a Japanese landing near Townsville or possibly further south. So at that point, Australia felt very vulnerable. It was very vulnerable. I mean, it was more vulnerable then in a way to a direct attack than in a sense it is now. And uh, as you are aware, um, this, court, this leads Australia to pull on its two allies. It demands from Britain the withdrawal of Australian forces that have been serving uh, the British, uh, well, actually imperial purposes, but as it were, um, they saw them as the British, particularly in the Middle East, and it pulls on the Americans to try and protect them and the Americans do indeed provide air uh, air force uh, support and it's um, uh, it's American aircraft carriers and American fleet uh, that of course uh, actually engages the Japanese in the Battle of the Coral Sea, which is the first real I would say fleet engagement in Japanese sorry in Australian waters. Um, so in a way, Australia moves more into the American strategic ambit, not least because of what in some respects was fortuitous. The, um, the American Navy would have preferred to fight a war against Japan, concentrating on the Central Pacific, concentrating on the, the shortest route, as it were, um, San Diego Naval Base, Honolulu Naval Base, um, in through the Marianas, in to recapture the Philippines and or attack Japan mainstream. Uh, instead of which there's an addition, that's the Nimitz approach, in, and that draws and looks on 1920s, 1930s American war planning. The, Focus on New Guinea, the one associated with the Southwest Australia thing and MacArthur, I think 
can be looked at in a number of different ways. I mean, in, in some respects, it's a strategic cul-de-sac. The Japanese were not really in a position, particularly after Coral Sea and even more after Midway in the summer of 42, the Japanese were not really in a position to invade Australia, not with any significant forces. Um, and in a sense, there is a massive overcommitment of American and Australian military resources to the New Guinea campaign, a campaign in which not only there are significant casualties for fighting the Japanese in a campaign that goes to the end of the war, but also appallingly heavy casualties from disease, particularly, but not only malaria. So you could argue that that's a cul-de-sac. On the other hand, from the Australian point of view, the idea of protecting Port Moresby, keep driving the Japanese from the North Shore of New Guinea seemed very necessary. Again, I'm not sure it was. I mean, after all, um, the Japanese major uh, base at Rabul, which they'd conquered from the Australians is isolated uh, and it isn't necessary, no more than it's necessary at truck to the major Japanese base there to actually capture those in order to neutralize the Japanese forces. Anyway, the war ends with Australia um, and New Zealand moving closer to the United States. A sense, particularly, I think, uh, after uh, independence for India and with that for Pakistan, Burma and Ceylon, uh, Sri Lanka, that Britain is less of a um, um, regional, certainly less of a global power. Um, obviously, the British remain important to Australia in the struggle against communist insurgency in uh, Malaya, the, you know, the uh, Malayan emergency, and then subsequently in helping Malaysia again in the Borneo confrontation against Indonesia. And both of those very much are in line with Australian interests. And Australia, of course, plays a role. Um, after that, they diverge. The Australians, like the, you know, send troops to the Vietnam War. Uh, Harold Wilson uh, keeps Britain out of that war. Uh, Britain increasingly appears marginal. The decision to cancel the through-deck carrier taken by the Wilson government, its decision to withdraw from Singapore and indeed Aden uh, means that it effectively ceases to be an Indian Ocean colony and it has to be, sorry, Indian Ocean power, and it has to be said that the Pacific colonies are abandoned as quickly as possible by the British. Uh, we're left at the moment with Pitcairn, that's all, and that's simply because <laughs> it really, it's not really capable of um, being a self-governed country, independent country. Um, so from the Australian point of view, there isn't much game in town. Uh, the game is America. Uh, there are irritations in that alliance, are uh, irritations both ways, incidentally, although the Australians are much less irritating to the Americans than the New Zealanders, who really are freeloaders. Um, the, um, but the alliance works essentially because the demands upon it are relatively modest. Australia plays a significant role in nearby um, um, issues, particularly the East, East Timor issue when it comes up in the 1990s, uh, the Solomon Islands uncertainties, um, low-level low internal conflict, the same on Bougainville. It's the Australians that play the role of regional stabiliser. And of course, Australia remains in its island groups and island colonies, you know, a significant force in the Southwest Pacific, 
and the Americans don't really have to worry about the Southwest Pacific at this stage. And it's not, uh, and during the Cold War, although the Soviet Union uh, becomes the second largest navy in the world, um, with a significant submarine force, um, first of all, the major Soviet submarine concerns, the major uh, submarine bases uh, are in the White Sea, the major concerns are in the Atlantic. Um, the Pacific is very secondary. The, the Soviets, in effect, are in the, have a very, very limited warm water portage, the Vladivostok area. To the north of that, along the coast, it's ICCs, um, and there's no equivalent to the Gulf Stream there. And I mean, these are shallow seas, easy to intercept submarines moving out, and Japan develops a significant anti-submarine um, warfare capability, which is very important to American interests in the Pacific, somewhat understated. Um, and that's a long way from Australia. So in a sense, um, Australia is not in the front line of the Cold War uh, after the Vietnam conflict is finished. And uh, in that period after the um, end of the Vietnam conflict, and you know, there were 60,000 Australian forces um, helping the Americans and South Vietnamese in that, in that conflict. So, I mean, quite a significant contribution. In the period after that, uh, so we're talking the, the, uh, the, the, you know, the second half of the 1970s and the 1980s, has China emerged as a significant strategic threat in the Western and Southwestern Pacific at this stage? Or are we still in the Cold War uh, with the, the Soviet fleet right up until 1991? Well, that's a very good question. Several things to say. First of all, the Australians fought very well in Vietnam. That tends to be um, underrated because the war is, you know, how it is subsequently treated. I think um, you could say, uh, without getting oneself into too trouble, too much trouble with American listeners, that some Australian units did better than some of their American counterparts. Let's leave it like that. Um, as far as the position after that is concerned, you have to remember China is strategically a sort of passive part of the American alliance. China, after all, is a strategic competitor with the Soviet Union. The Chinese are fighting the Vietnam from the late 70s right through the 80s into the early 90s. Um, the major naval base in that part of the world, Camran Bay, which is in Vietnam, was developed by the Soviets as a base uh, in Vietnam, as a naval base. Uh, there is no equivalent Chinese naval base. And the key thing to bear in mind is at that stage, the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, is very much an army base. It has naval and air components, but it's very much an army-centered organization. So the Navy is very much, you know, um, a minor cog in China's war machine. Um, and it's essentially an inshore water Navy. So one that can, um, you know, possibly uh, put pressure on, on Vietnam, but it's not in any position to challenge the United States, nor would they have wished to do so at that stage. Um, and any conflict with the Soviet Union would have gone rapidly, probably nuclear, but if it hadn't gone nuclear, and if it had remained of the kind of, as it were, of the Japanese-Soviet frontier clashes of 38-39, these were ones without any naval component. So 
China does not, China is not a naval challenge to Australia or to the United States in the latter stages, or indeed the earlier stages of the Cold War. Before we get to the submarine deal, um, let's look a little bit at the, at the intelligence picture. Obviously, Australia is uh, an important part of the Five Eyes. When, when did Australia become part of the uh, Five Eyes, and how significant a role has it played in, in recent times? Um, I think the Five Eyes represent a um, very uh, significant um, scenario because intelligence has become, I would say, more important in the post-Cold War era because you're less, it's less obvious whom your opponents are and which order to locate them. I mean, in a sense, intelligence was very important during the Cold War, but it was pretty obvious that the Soviet Union was your major challenge. There was, the Soviet Union was operating within established paradigms of intelligence evaluation. Now, if you think about the situation of the last, let's just say, 20 years, you've had a multiplicity of states whose um, who the extent to which they would substantiate their threats are unclear. Sometimes the extent to which their foreign policy mechanism is in control of their military profile is very unclear. So if you take an obvious example, Iran. Um, Iran, the Revolutionary Guard, are they running their own foreign policy? Are they running their own military? Do you need a separate, as it were, strand of intelligence evaluation of them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, for Australia, the um, strategic challenge has changed. I've been to Australia, I think, five times. And on my second visit, I was a visiting fellow at the Australian War College. The, and at that stage, I think it is fair to say that as far as external threat was concerned, the major Australian concern was not China, it was Indonesia. You had many Australian commentators, politicians commenting on the enormous mismatch in population terms, talking about how Indonesia might be ambitious to, as it were, seize territory, or at least even just have an uncontrolled or controlled or immigration into Northern Australia. And what could they do about that? And you got lots of people saying, you know, there are 200 million Indonesians and there's only 20 or 25 million of us. What are we going to do? And that was part of the background to the tension over the Timor question. It was a, a protracted anxiety and concern about the Indonesian military and a concern as to whether the civil government had actually any real, you know, the government in Jakarta had any real control over the leading military barons. Now, for Australia, at that stage, China, if anything, was a benign power. And it remained a benign power at a stage when the United States was becoming more concerned. China was the major market for Australian raw materials, particularly, for example, iron ore, 
and coal at a time that much of the rest of the world was deindustrializing and also was of growing significance as a market for Australian food products as China become, became wealthier and became more necessary for it to import food, two separate but linked processes. So I would say, if anything, that although there was, as it were, some Australian awareness that China might be a problem, that the Australians for a long time tried to ignore this. And in a way, that was helped by the so-called war on terror. Because if the war on terror involved, for example, horrific atrocities by Islamic terrorists in places like Bali, as it did do with Australians killed, um, the agenda was not one of China becoming more powerful. And indeed, I think it's fair to say that although some American policymakers, particularly in the Navy, were aware in the early 2000s that the China issue was starting to become more troubling, I think it's fair to say that more of American public debate and military procurement was focused at this point on the um, seemingly inexorable expansion coming from so-called state building or stabilization in Iraq and Afghanistan. So that the Australians, if you want to call it this, stick their head profitably in the sand. I mean, there were vast sums of money. I'm not talking about bribery. I'm just saying there were vast sums of money coming into Australia through its exports into China. This was not the moment uh, for in which many Australians found it convenient to think of China as a strategic challenge. And there were all sorts of other things, like, for example, Australian universities, seeing the same thing happen in Britain, were taking large amounts of, of um, large numbers of Chinese students, Chinese investment was coming into Australia, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I think it's fair to say that America moved much more rapidly than Australia in the two teens to understand the challenge from China that Australian policy continued to be largely predicated on economic interest. Um, and the Australians, I mean, they had their minor military affairs in their near Australia. I mean, Solomon Islands presence, I think the Australians were 95% of the international peacekeeping force there, you know, this sort of thing. Um, and the, the Americans more or less left the Southwest Pacific to the Australians, um, who were very interested in developing the Pacific Forum and all the rest of it. Um, but at that stage, this was not being done in competition with China. The main competition was a concern about instability in the equivalent of what might be failed states, tribal violence, sectarianism, as in the Solomon Islands, where, you know, the islands have got a sort of um, sort of ethnic based tensions between different islands. Um, and there was worry about that. Um, and I, I would say to you that Australia's conversion has come relatively late. And it's come faster than Canada. Canada has, um, to a great extent, been more reluctant. Um, 
but the Australians were not as quick as the Americans to see the problem coming along. It was the Americans and the Japanese who saw it much more rapidly. Well, that brings us to the contention of the submarine deal. What has changed for the Australians in the last five or six years from which they, when they started to discuss buying French electric diesel submarines to the decision that has just been made to buy Anglo-American submarine technology, nuclear powered submarines? Uh, five, six years ago, the, the threat from China was already starting to be perceived in Canberra. Uh, various scandals yes. uh, uh, about um, Chinese um, influence um, were already manifesting themselves at that time. So what, what has changed between thinking uh, the French submarines were good enough uh, and you know, here we are in 2021 uh, deciding that actually um, um, nuclear-powered submarines were, were necessary? Well, necessary and obtainable. I mean, in a sense, people tend to forget that when the choice was for the French, it was a choice between the French and the German Thiessen submarines, that at that stage, the technology would not have been made available by the Americans. So the Australians were choosing between um, a, how shall one put it, a subordinate military system. And it was a question of which, which, uh, which provider was going to do it. And there was a whole host of issues, as you know. And, and just, just to jump in, if I may, uh, just to pick up on, on, a, on an interesting point, you said, you said the American technology wouldn't have been available five or six years ago. Why, why, why wouldn't it have been available to the Because the Americans weren't, proposed, weren't proposing to provide it. Right, right, I see. Um, so, and as you know, there were a whole host of issues. I mean, it would be wrong of me to say that bribery led to the French success, but it would be true to say there were scandals surrounding the procurement of the French system. I hope I've said that nicely enough to save you from any legal action. Okay. Yeah, to save yourself. Well, no, save myself. <laughs> you know? um, so... I'm afraid I'm not wealthy enough to be worth suing. <laughs> um, so the um, so I think um, I, diesel submarines. Well, you know, you've read it in the you've read it in the newspapers. They would have had to have spent a long time um, going on to station. Um, they had uh, they were in a sense a technology that was adequate for. Um, seas rather than oceans. That's how I would see it. Um, and for Australia, the as indeed for the United States, the speed with which China has pressed ahead with um, naval procurement is frightening. I mean, to give you an example, without naming him, but anybody would know who I was talking about, who's in Britain's leading naval historian faithfully assured me four years ago that there was nothing to worry about the Chinese because they had no real um, uh, background in naval uh, studies. They wouldn't be able to, you know, to manage their, their warships properly, et cetera, et cetera. And they'd never be as good. Well, quite frankly, that all now look, it looked to me, it was ridiculous at the time, but, you know, there is a lot of pomposity among, um, among a lot of people who, who pass muster as commentators. Um, 
I think it's fair to say that initially, as you know, the Chinese um, uh, did a certain amount of procurement from ex-Soviet uh, uh, um, vessels. Uh, initially, it, it uh, was not as impressive, but it actually to those people who were observant, the key thing this, the Chinese were doing was building up the structure to build vessels. That was the key thing they were doing. They were opening uh, shipyards. They were building the necessary engineering facilities to provide them um, with, the, uh, with the wherewithal to build and sustain a significant fleet. And they were also developing very important asymmetrical um, anti-ship um, technologies. In other words, the American naval presence in the Western Pacific focuses on aircraft carriers. Although the Chinese have aircraft carriers, what the Chinese chose to focus on was uh, develop long-range uh, guided anti-ship missiles with multiple warheads, which are a real challenge. Um, so that the Chinese have indeed acquired a significant capability, obviously, in the event of war, which I hope doesn't happen, we will discover precisely that some of these warships are better than others. Some of these capabilities are better than others. Some of these missiles can be blocked, some of them can't be. We will discover all of that. But the point is um, that it's a little late to be uh, assessing this at the time of war. And the, the headline is that um, China is en route to becoming the largest navy in the world and mass itself has virtue because it enables you to operate in a number of different contexts and places and on top of that the chinese have clearly articulated their determination uh, in these ideas of you know rings of islands etc or arcs of uh, deployment to move further and further in their ambitions into the pacific and that includes specific issues in particular island chains such as the Solomons um, and this has and you know and in Polynesia this has not been welcome to Australia so Australia has found itself in a very different context and a very different technology threatened by what actually appeared in danger in 1942 which was Japanese advances in the southwest Pacific would cut Australasia off from the United States so, I mean, obviously, the first um, requirement for the Australians is to have adequate defence for Australia and her territorial waters. How much does the new uh, AUKUS Pact allow for, uh, as it were, a forward strategy for Australia? Um, does, it, does this make it more likely that it would be involved in the defence of Taiwan, for example? or any of the other um, little island groups that the Chinese are effectively militarizing? Well, I mean, in reality, although this tends to be forgotten, this is political rather than military, because these submarines aren't going to be ready for a long time. And that element of timing tends to be forgotten. So we're, re we're really talking about a weapon system that isn't there and won't be there for a really quite a few years. And that's assuming that the project um, is sustained, which I think it will be, it's such a, but also assumes that it doesn't have delays. So we'll leave that to one side. Um, and I'm sure that a whole host of delays probably will arise. They usually do, these are complicated systems. Um, but 
the more, more important element of it is the political element of it. The political element is very clear that this is part of what is seen as a interlocking and overlapping pat, pat, uh, pattern of alliances designed to give China pause to think. That's what it's designed to do. Uh, like everything, it does rather rely on the other side getting the message. Um, but that is what it is designed to do from the Australian viewpoint. I mean, obviously, it's, um, it anchors its relationship with the United States more strongly, uh, which is important. Um, uh, it's part and parcel of Australia, like Japan, trying to show themselves as good allies to the United States and therefore powers that the United States will find reasons to heed on these and other matters. Um, and those are substantive and significant. I mean, in practical terms, Australia is already the principal defence power in the Southwest Pacific. That will remain the case. Australia obviously um, is signaling uh, its readiness uh, for a more forward deployment of naval vessels. But I think there's got to be on no illusions. The South China Sea, the East China Sea, the waters around Taiwan are not going to be easy for any deployment of warships um, in the face of Chinese anti-ship um, weaponry. How do you see the the balance of the deployment in AUKUS between the, the British, the Americans and the Australians? Well, I think the Americans are the key, uh, are key. But what the Americans are doing is taking part in, um, you know, it's a move away from, shall we say, uh, the characteristic of President Trump's administration, which was to emphasise transactional bilateralism. So it's a multilateralism. And it's linked to um, the other alliances the Americans are trying to substantiate. I think, quite frankly, the one with Japan is easier and more significant than the one with South Korea, because the South Koreans, um, you know, there are practical problems of the in terms of the willingness of the South Koreans to do anything other than defend South Korean space, which you could understand. I mean, South Korea is very vulnerable. And of course, the Indians are, shall we say, uh, better at rhetoric than on delivery in terms of defence commitments. Do, do you see, um, and I'm asking you to, to foresee here, uh, but do you foresee that um, AUKUS could attract additional regional members to join as well, a, a coalition of the um, um, Pacific willing, or is it more likely that, that it will just be a rallying call to give strength to other American allies in Southeast Asia um, who won't formally become part of AUKUS, but, but might take strength from, from the, uh, the- Latter rather than the former. I mean, it's very specifically linked, obviously, to a particular nature of uh, a particular weapons system, which one's not going to be parting with more generally, and obviously some other um, states are, you can't rely on their political traction to remain part of the system, you know, if you might create it. But the from the American perspective, I think it's fair to say that this is part of a, of a military diplomatic architecture. 
and that is what is significant. And that architecture is one which makes a lot of sense because what you're trying to do is to increase um, interoperability with those that are willing to cooperate with you, so military interoperability, and you're trying to increase diplomatic traction. And I think actually that's good. I mean, I think the Americans have done well in this, and I think the Australians have done well, and insofar as the British have, co have helped to facilitate it, that's an important, you know, important for the British and by the British. Well, let's, in a final question, turn the periscope the other way around. Uh, if you were in Beijing, what what would what lessons would you draw from uh, this uh, submarine deal and the creation of Arcus? I think if you're a, a Chinese policymaker, you're in a very difficult position, uh, largely of your own making. I have hasten to add, you've been encouraging a revisionist. Um, set of foreign policy demands, specifically on Taiwan, but also more generally um, in the South China Sea, um, uh, sort of hostility towards Japan, bullying towards other states. And yet, you are, however economically powerful you are, and however militarily potent you are, I'm not sure that you want the uncertainty of war. Now, it may well be that the regime in Beijing have calculated that they can take a war over Taiwan, that it would not go nuclear, and that they would win it, and that that would really consolidate their position and be a fundamental humiliation to the West and to its role at, at all in um, in uh, uh, in Asian, East Asian, Southeast Asian power politics. And if they have taken that calculation, then I think that's very unfortunate because Taiwan is a democracy. Um, Taiwan's incidentally only been uh, ruled by China since 1683. Um, and I think it would not be um, good if power is exerted in this fashion as the determinant of international relations. And I'm not sure that people have really thought about that enough. And I mean, it was, put it like this, it was disappointing to see President Macron's response. You know, okay, um, it's not nice to lose a big deal. The French government was reckoning on the profits from it to help sustain its position in, in Polynesia, where it's got a, you know, um, a significant presence. Um, and you can understand President Macron being irritated. But the fact of the matter is, if you're an American policymaker or an Australian policymaker, forget about Britain, um, the extent to which France and Germany together, and they're the basic drivers of the European Union, are willing to stand up, even in a sense of deterrence, I'm not talking about war here, against China or Russia, is extraordinarily unclear. And that's being polite, okay? Um, and from that context, 
I mean, President Macron seems to want a foreign policy of being everything to everybody, or rather everything focusing on himself. So, and I think, you know, he may well succeed if his only rival in the runoff is Marine Le Pen, he'll win. Um, but, um, and, you know, he may well be able to push through his schemes for a, a, as it were, a Franco-German running of the EU under the guise of revitalizing it. He may well be able to do that. Uh, but I think he is, to put it mildly, a unreliable ally in any world in which China and Russia are challenges. And I think those British commentators, you see it in the Times, you see Vernon Bognador endlessly writing the same article saying the same thing, which is saying that Britain ought to ally with France, forgets the point that France is only interested in an alliance with Britain on French terms. Well, we'll have to leave it there. And um, discussing um, French strategy might be a, a very good subject for a, a podcast in the Black History Week another day. Uh, Professor Jeremy Black, whose A Short History of War has uh, just been published by Yale University Press for discussing Australia, uh, submarines and AUKUS. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the current offer of five issues for £10 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.